So to respond to some of your questions or the topics you're touching into. A couple of questions on craving upadana and tanha. Why do you emphasize upadana instead of tanha? I thought tanha was in the Four Noble Truths as the cause of suffering. And isn't it tanha that is the fuel for clinging, upadana? That is so, can a person focus more on the arising of tanha, craving, and thereby release, or not even have the clinging arise? Mm. Well, this is really, this is the Buddha's teaching, it's not really my teaching, and he approached it in different ways, different angles you could access. Sometimes he, he talked a lot about upadana, the aggregates, particularly with reference to the, also the aggregates. And then clearly in Four Noble Truths he talks about uh, craving. But prior to that he also talks about the aggregates in the First Noble Truth as the aggregates, the upadana kanda. Mm. as the basis from which uh, supports craving and craving supports clinging and clinging supports craving so which way you, which one you start with it's you know, a matter of um, approach generally if you start with um, craving you're really talking about a particular energy that rushes through the system and because it moves it's sort of a force that moves dynamically and it flashes through uh, you can recognize um, maybe you can recognize this is this isn't something that's good for me but not necessarily uh, upadana you can look at this first in one sense as objects one's clinging that is clinging happens around you know say food or views or things like that but more primarily it, it isn't something one does it's the whole setup of the aggregates it's called the upadana kanda which means the very structure that we experience as our as our self is really a welded together conglomerate of factors that are supportive of clinging, called the upadana kanda, stuck together, and based upon this, the the conglomeration of this, the sense of there being a single entity here, then that acts as a firm foundation for the entity to then crave to have something. Now, if that entity is seen as not a single entity at all, then the foundation for it craving to occur is severely limited. Yeah. Because if you look at just on a more dynamic object orientation, then clearly craving means that I will get something. Well, if the I am hasn't got a foundation, then... <laughs> you know, on one level, one can't really, the craving to get something doesn't happen. But the more primary form of craving, which one will not notice, isn't this rush towards some sense object so much as a, what's called bhavatanha, or vibhavatanha, which is something that holds one, seems to hold uh, thoughts, opinions, views. Bodies, sensations, perceptions into a, into a single unit, as is happening to me. And one wouldn't notice that as craving. Uh, because, of course, the one who notices it is the result of that setup. Right? So the kanda, rupa, uh, form, consciousness, perception, feeling, and sankara. These uh, uh, 
this setup, of course, which is what occurs um, again, dependent upon a very primary form of craving, the craving for existence, for a unified, single, permanent entity, which is prior to a decision. It's just the this is what what we come in on. Uh, yeah, so that. Uh, this is the more fundamental form of craving that only the uh, the um, arahants have dismantled. And one doesn't notice that as craving, but you might notice it as clinging, as a sense of what is this entity that's stuck together and yet doesn't quite add up. It, it doesn't really hold together. It's seemingly together, but... The feelings come and go, the perceptions come and go, the activate the motivations and activations are changing and fluctuating, and sometimes you know the 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 activations or the intentions in, are in conflict with the feeling it's not it's a very discordant entity mm. um, so it's in perhaps in the defective and dissonant nature of the clung to experience that one begins to get a sense of hey something wrong here it isn't working and no matter how much uh, on that basis craving happens in other words no matter how much this entity gets and has and you know grabs hold of things it still doesn't mean doesn't add up to a coherent, peaceful entity still in some state of dissonance. So then clinging or the inability to effectively stick together, (laughs) to to effectively arrive at a harmonious, unified, settled entity called myself, that is perhaps the existential problem that beings arrive at that motivates them to investigate this and to try and so and it's in that process that one begins to see first of all that any object that one that craving directs to is by their, their very fact already not attained by the fact that one craves it means one doesn't have it uh, so and then when one has it one no longer craves it but then it isn't satisfied one doesn't arrive at the final, finalized, satisfied state. So in the, in the play of these two factors, you, you can see the, you begin to get this dukkha, which is not because anything's really terrible. It's just that things are not adding up to the satisfied state. Mm. Now if we contemplate these or review these in light of dependent origination, Patija Samukpada, then as a practical means, uh, you know, teachers will generally not, meditation teachers will not so much talk about the first set of, of terms that have come up, but which is Vijapachya, uh, Sankara, Vijnana, Namarupa. But they'll talk more about which is more the, the foundational experience, the, fa- the foundation for the suffering experience, the stressful experience. We'll talk more about the, the dynamic moment actions that arise from that basis and also keep uh, affirming that basis. And these are uh, feeling, Vedana, Tanha, craving, clinging, upadana. And so some teachers will say you can experience, you can contemplate feeling as feeling and that way sever the degree of blind craving because through through ignorance craving ceases. Through, through the cessation of ignorance craving ceases. Not through craving to get rid of it. And this is this is because, and this is pretty crucial. You can't crave to get rid of craving. You can be motivated, but the actual force that extinguishes craving is not a desire of some kind. It's basically cl- clarity, and so that 
through clearly reviewing feeling as a feeling, it's there, it, it, it happens, it's inevitable, painful, pleasant feeling is inevitable. And you s- there's a recognition of a, of a distinction between that and this launch reflex of craving to have more, craving to get rid of it, uh, and so forth. You see, so in, in the seeing of that, it's possible to allow a feeling just to rise, be felt, and pass without getting this reflex. Other teachers will say you, you could do that, or you could also contemplate the link between craving and clinging. That is, experiencing this sense of desire arising and uh, not identifying with it. So just, this is just craving happens, there isn't somebody who craves, and you let the craving arise, and you know, the volitional urge, and you don't, you don't follow it, you don't stick an object onto it, you don't identify with it, you see it so like as an energy that arises and passes, and through this degree of clarity, also seeing wears down the links between craving and clinging, so you break it there, and rather like an electric circuit, anywhere you break this uh, these connections that are mentioned in dependent origination, just like cutting a, a, a cable, anywhere you cut it, then the thing begins to, you know, switch off. So those are the two points that mostly teachers will emphasize, either the link between feeling, pleasure, pain, and craving, either to have more of it or to get rid of it, uh, or between um, craving and then clinging, that is, erecting that craving towards some object, or identifying that craving as belonging to a person. Like, I am craving, I shouldn't crave, when am I going to get my desires for this kind of thing? Now, this is craving. So this quality of clear seeing is the, is the tool or the means. And of course, one has to have a really, pretty good sense of clarity and stability in order to affect such a, such a release. The more found, and this helps to. Well, it's definitely the link that it's it's more possible that the basis, which is mentioned in the earlier um, factors, um, vijnana, nama, rupa, salayatana, that is consciousness, name, form, and the sense basis, that that will also dismantle because you've cut off the current, and then these aggregates which are there. Independent origination, they're, they're specified as Nama, Rupa, and Vijnana. So these, these are the, the five aggregates, which I hope you're aware of, you know. Uh, They'll make this whole kind of lecture on these things. But they, those five aggregates are also presented under this rubric, Nama, Rupa, Vijnana. So Nama equals Vedana, Sanya, Sankara. Uh, Rupa is Rupa, Vijnana is Vijnana. So those are the five aggregates that are called affected by clinging. Just again to remind you, it's not that somebody clings, uh, but that this stickiness definitely occurs around these aggregates, this sticky quality. And it's also reckoned that these aggregates can still pertain without stickiness, so that the stickiness can be washed off them through through insight, uh, through through wisdom. And then we have the functional qualities of these aggregates without the adherence and the uh, you know trying to uh, the the selfhood. And so that may sound a bit theoretical, but that's so just as a practice if this this particular piece is something that's you know 
you're focusing on. Let's mention those two points, feeling and craving, or craving and clinging. And you might also use this sense of, well, what constitutes my experience of selfhood? Uh, uh, Feeling happens to me. Does it? Uh, I perceive something. Is it? So this mysterious "I, me" occurs as as an as an impression, as an echo, as a resonance, but cannot be found, and cannot. Uh, uh, it's a, it's it's an it's a it, that itself is a clinging. It's a acquisition of perceptions, acquiring them, an acquisition of feeling. Um, so this is these upadis, these are acquisitions. The, upad, the aggregates are acquisitions. They're acquired, or they've got a certain sticky grip to them. And that sticky grip can be relinquished through just seeing it actually as they are. Notice feeling, feeling, feeling. Is it possible to have a f- to experience feeling without some, you know, wanting to have it or wanting it to go away? Mm, that's that's a major that's a major focus of practice. Is there room for unpleasant feeling without fighting it? So, as if you. Questions around stream entry. What is it? (laughs) This is a good question. And if someone is a stream enterer, so stream entry is one phrase, and and there's another phrase called stream enterer, one who has done the stream entry, and who is someone, what helps the stream entry go to the next stage of awakening? And um, somewhat aligned to that, the um, different definitions of the noble disciple seems that um, I'm presenting it in a more generous way to include, you know, people, people, general, larger number of people and others. Example: The Burmese are rather stingy with doling out this title, noble disciple. <laughs> Who gets the V one? <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, I think we're going to c- probably come up. In several instances, with a certain problem, which is fundamental in the Buddhist transmission, <laughs> which is it's it's not a it's not a coherent, entirely coherent transmission. <laughs> so we might call we might use a phrase like Theravada, and assume it's all the same thing, but it, the, the the word was only really commonly adopted in 1950 <laughs> to encompass a fairly a, a group of lineages and traditions that had a lot in common, historically and culturally and geographically and, termi- and with terminology have a lot in common, but not everything in common. Yeah. And so, in if you look in the, to the Pali Canon as a very early uh, collection, you see it doesn't present any particular detailed system. The suttas are just talking about this or about that, or uh, and one suta the next is not really a connection. There are certain basic themes that run through it. If you wanted to extract those fundamental themes. Then, as in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, you'd say, well, there's morality, concentration on meditation and, and wisdom. 
and that the uh, path of meditation or the path of liberation begins with some sense of uh, correct behavior, moral, kindly, mutual, supportive, friendship, right life, right lifestyle uh, as, a, as practice. And then from that, the mind feels more comfortable and, and wholesome. And then you can develop meditation through that and through that wisdom occurs. And probably that's, that is a thing everybody would agree upon. <laughs> but it's not very detailed as a system. And so sometime after the Buddha's passing away, there was a lot of confusion and then various schools arose having different notions and even trying to, ex- to explain pieces that the Buddha hadn't actually taught to try to clarify areas they thought were mis- missed out. So there was a lot of disputes, and then one school, one group, just, you know, decided to lay down a very, very precise analytical method to get things down really nice and clear. And, and so this kind of rather random stuff, get it really precise. And these were the who are the Vibhajavadins, because Vibhaja means an analysis. And they seem to uh, formulate something called the Abhidharma, which is a very precise, meticulous uh, presentation of how the mind operates, down to mind moments, and a very precise kind of construction, metaphysical presentation. And then, so that was it. They felt very confident with that. This has got it down really clearly once it. And subsequent, in uh, this group were in Sri Lanka, and then that became one of the basis of what we call Theravada. And there's the great commentator, uh, they tried to establish meditation systems that would be based upon this understanding of mind. And this one of these meditation systems was called insight meditation, which was considered somewhat distinct from samatha meditation. And uh, they felt insight meditation was the best, clearest, wisest process for, for liberation. And, and so this was then established. And the Burmese particularly took, made a very strong point of this, and over the centuries, they've developed a very refined and meticulous systematic approach to meditation. And in this approach, you know, level realizations are, are marked. Oh, this, is a, this, this is this knowledge. There are different levels of knowledges and insights that arise um, that they've seemingly identified and pointed out and described techniques to actually realize that that this level of insight then you've got there you go to the next one and this so it's like that so they've d- developed this and then they've also analyzed what street stream entry means you've got this particular mind state has occurred and this one falls away and then you've got this other mind state occurs down to to fine details um, so then they're quite precise on who has it who's had this if you had this insight and you've had this, then you are. If you haven't had it, you're not. And that makes it you know, very clear. But unfortunately, it's not doesn't quite fit the suttas, which are not that razor sharp clear. Aren't they? They're much sort of what I've just said. <laughs> uh, so the, the definitions of stream entry are rather different. Uh, between what the uh, the uh, Burmese Sayadors would present, and I'm not not for me to really vindicate or refute that. I'm just saying it is different from what appears in the suttas, and I think their rationale will be, yeah, it is different, but we're trying to make it clearer because it's a little, it's not very detailed in the suttas. So this is our way of trying to make it really clear, and a way you can know for sure. Now, when the Buddha 
referred to stream entry. So the factors of stream entry are one has unbroken, unwavering confidence in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and one has uh, generally the five precepts, mm. or a very you know, and a very complete commitment to that, and it doesn't waver. Then you are a stream enterer. No matter what's happening, you don't lose that. No. That's one presentation of it, which clearly is not about one particular mind moment happening. This is much more prolonged. So then, then one is called, and there's also those who are on the path to stream entry. It means they're building up their faith. They've definitely got a, a degree of it. This is called, in this sutta, this is called the Sadhanusari, someone who's following on with a mind of, that's really got a lot of uh, faith in it. And, you know, so they're moving along. So they're considered in our description of the, what's called the eight Aryapugalas, the eight noble beings. These are considered to be noble ones, people who've got a good measure of faith and are resolutely, you know, coming to that. So these are called the path. People are on the path to stream entry. And then a certain, you know, that as that becomes stronger and stronger, then that firms up into one definitely has. And there's no turning back. You never lose it. And this exactly, you know, when there's a point where this happens, uh, I think it would be very rather difficult to exactly say. Mm. Another way in which the stream mantra is described, and this is where that question of what, what to do next uh, comes up, is in what's eliminated. So the stream mantra, the one who has completely entered the stream, has eliminated uh, what are called three of ten fetters. Fetters are, well, described. The first fetter is called Sakaya Ditti, which... Uh, believes in a conglomerated entity, basically commensurate with his physical form. I live inside this body, this is me, here I am, I am this being. That's, you know, and they, they, they act and they orient very much around that, and that's, that's their basis. And so that's the one who has it. Now someone who has not, doesn't have that, doesn't take this um, single conglomerate entity, sensory physical form as their basic identity. Second feta is called doubt or uncertainty with regards to Dhamma. Mm, one doesn't know how to practice, what to practice, whether to practice or not, whether the true teachings are really true, whether you fit it, whether you're good enough for it. Uh, what you sh- you know is this havering, wobbling heart, and the third is um, clinging to systems and customs, as I described earlier. And they're really three aspects of the same thing, because one doesn't have a very full ground in terms of dharma, which uh, therefore one, there's a clinging to a conglomerate entity and as a clinging to some kind of structure and observances that will hold it together. So one conglomerates around the entity, one conglomerates around organizing the world to fit that entity, and the central fetter of that is just this not really having a very strong penetration of Dhamma. So the stream entered has passed through that. They do have faith, strong confidence, they still have greed, they still have aversion, <laughs> and so forth, these in, in some form or another. So those haven't disappeared. But um, the sense of confidence in Dhamma has weakened them, or, we, or weakened the, the tendency to follow those, those instincts. And so the, the, if one does have that perspective on these, then clearly the next things that arise are the very weakening and, and eradication of those instinctive forms of sense, desire and irritation. 
viapada, irritability. So you just keep contemplating when the, those flickers arise. Mm, yeah, and you contemplate those. And this is uh, the arising and the passing of these. These energies arise and pass and there's no retaining of them, no crystallizing of them, no activation of them, an increasing lessening of any reaction around them. So they, they subside and they're not fed and they fade out. So, so um, there are some, um, some presentations seem to indicate that this stream, as in this uh, um, insight systems, the stream entry occurs just at one particular moment. Um, it's a kind of snap. And you can see certain references that might justify that, such as, um, you know, the Visaka, the matriarch I was mentioning this morning, she became a stream entry when she was a little girl, just on hearing, well, according to an account, hearing a teaching. So. So she didn't have any practice. She probably had never developed, didn't have any Abhidharma or anything, but she had something happen where something let go. Um, then it was Sariputta also um, hearing a phrase uttered by the Aranasaji about the nature of what the Buddha was teaching had this realization. Wow. It became a stream entrance. Anya Kandanya. Kandanya in, in the appears in the first discourse when the Buddha is presenting the first noble truth. He hears this teaching, and something drops away for him. And he it's called Anya Kandanya Anya, whose nose he's a stream enterer. So some things might think, oh, this is just something pop, you know. <laughs> you get it, and that could very well be the case. How it happens with people are that. Places where it says, um, you know, these fetters don't suddenly snap. They rot away rather like the rigging of a ship. When it's when it's broken up ship left on the, on the shore, the rigging gradually rots away. It doesn't suddenly go. So there are certain ambiguities in, in how this is presented. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's also uh, the Buddha sometimes said, well, I don't even talk about this very much because it can be the case that people think because they got this, they're, they're home and dry, when in fact they should keep going. But if, you ha if this stream entry has occurred because of this complete resolution in terms of Dhamma, then you've definitely broken the back of craving. You know, you've, you've made the first big major step and the rest of it's just you know, tidying up the details, which might make you take a few lifetimes to do a course, but, you know, who's in a hurry anyway? <laughs> so, and Kandanyo's realization was all that is arising, and Sariputta's realization was all that is the, of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. So this particular phrase, when that occurs, that's called the spotless immaculate vision of the Dhamma, and that represents stream entry in the suttas, the recognition of all that rises, passes, uh, or more, more exactly, the characteristic of arising is the characteristic of ceasing, as the same thing. So things never have a sing, nothing exists as an entity, everything is just like soap bubbles popping. Mm. So that's the, the closest one would get to the Sutta presentation of what the vision, the insight moment is about. And the Burmese Sidors have a different way, perhaps, of expressing that. But you'll find, in many cases, this is where you're going to get certain dissonances if you're... Because um, I don't, personally, I don't teach in that same systematic precise way so sometimes you know I, I don't really quite get the questions or what you're referring to yeah. 
because the terms don't quite mean the same thing to me as they might to someone who's followed that particular line of transmission. For example, what insight is, um, stages, which is very much coming from that particular transmission, the stages of insight are um, occur in the Visuddhi Magga and in the Burmese, but in the suttas, you don't really see it. There's only one sutta, which the whole Visuddhi Magga is based upon one sutta of, of the thousands of them. Only this reference only occurs once, and they base the entire Visuddhi Magga on that one system. So a little bit about Jitta, Jitta Sankara. What's the difference between Jitta Sankara, calming, uh, thoroughly knowing the Jitta Sankara, and thoroughly knowing the Jitta? or thoroughly experiencing the Jitta Sankara and thoroughly experiencing the Jitta, Patisangwedi. This is the refrain in the Anapanasati Sutta. Thoroughly feeling, fully sensitive to the Jitta Sankara, fully sensitive to Jitta. So Jitta Sankara will be these kind of um, well, formations, uh, particular qualities, uh, particular activities, particular uh, mental creations that you can witness. You know. um, they generally have a volitional intention to them. Chitta-sankara means sort of the, the driving force of one's mind, the shape of it, whether it's uh, destination fever is a chitta-sankara. Uh, um, you know, the generally the, the driving force, the shaping, the modality, the inclination of one's mind is the jitta sankara. Jitta, so you're thoroughly sensitive to that. You really, rather than act upon it or follow it, you, you sense, oh, this is that. Then it's gripping my body, then it's pushing me along, or it's dragging me down, or it's sp- spinning me out, or it's, you know, doing things. It's a doing kind of thing and I'm sensitive to that. Being sensitive to it, it's possible just to let's just cool that, not follow it, but just cool it. Cool the energy of that. So Pasambayang, thoroughly cooling, thoroughly soothing. Uh, when you thoroughly soothe the Jitta Sankara you become more aware of Jitta itself, which is we might say in this context, colloquial term the sensitivity. You're aware of a primary sensitive heart, you might say, because all the activities have been calm. So you're aware of, of fundamental sensitivity, heart. And you thoroughly sense that. The churning has stopped, the passions have cooled down, and now you're aware of that which has been affected by all these turbulences. Manas and Chitta. Are you always referring to heart-mind as Chitta or just heart? Does Chitta hold within it feeling, perceptions, formations and consciousness? Just realize when we use a word we would always imagine an entity like a thing, jitta is not an entity or a thing. It's a word, and it's a way they were trying to explain or express the different aspects of what we call mind, and so that realize there is a sort of, just as the eye is an organ and vision is a quality, so manas is an organ and jitta is the quality. You know, so just as the eye is the vision, Manas is the chitta. Chitta would say is the vision. Now, that's one way of looking at it. Except to recognize this vision is not an eye. <laughs> it's, it's not, it, it, it's, the mind is not an eye. So, chitta doesn't just act as a bland seer. It's 
constantly activated and uh, shifting, changing. So it's the property of changing feeling receptivity within we call the mind. And so we could say in some respects jitta is an aspect or the, the living quality of mind, um, the vitality, the urging, the feeling, the sensitivity of it, and that. The volitional sense, the moral tone is all chitta. Manas is just basically an organ that you can swing on to various objects, including, as someone inquires, including the chitta itself. You can scan, or you can scan the sankharas in the chitta. You can turn this manas quality to review what's happening in my heart, you could say, or my awareness. Uh, and at a certain point, one begins to recognize what's happening in my awareness is this question, what's happening in my awareness? <laughs> what would it be like if I stopped asking that question? <laughs> and then, uh, then there's nothing you can say. Then <laughs> the chitter is released from um, this activity So more prosaic qualities, jealousy, jealousy and loneliness. Uh, someone pointed out that at a certain point, when I talked about craving and clinging, coming to being due to a lack of love. Can you expand on what I meant by that? Well, we have loneliness and jealousy and um, these experiences. And so... In a more refined sense, clinging is is uh, because of ignorance. But on a more perhaps a more social, domestic level, then when there's the lack of sympathy and mutuality and warmth, then the tendency to to cling becomes more strong. To because you're not getting the sense of being held and shared and so it becomes a kind of defensive, isolated, self-conscious because of the lack of, of sympathy and warmth and mutuality. And this self-consciousness and the degree to which that's there, one feels isolated, therefore one feels lonely. One feels comparative, therefore she's got better than I have. One feels jealous, she's getting the good stuff, the happy stuff, she must feel great, I don't feel great, I'm jealous, how come she gets it or I don't? And this thing goes on. And really, of course, the ignorance is assuming that, you know, she's feeling great, which she may or may not be. Uh, and of course, the craziness is that, well, even if she is, then, <laughs> yeah, that, that can be the case, but why should it bother me? You know, how can, why should it bother me? I mean, uh, you know, why don't I find my own happiness rather than look at hers? Or, or if I look at hers, why don't I feel a sense of sympathy? Oh, wonderful, she's having a good day, that's great. And I feel a sense of mudita. And because of this isolation, and this isolation becomes not just um, socially, it becomes structured in to the, to the, to the way the mind operates, becomes structured in into the individual, separate individual, which is, of course, lonely, um, often willful, um, self-concerned, self-conscious, um, assessing itself in terms of how other people are, and this and that and the other. So on a very kind of basic behavioral level, the more that can be sharing and warmth and kalyanamita, then the basis for this is substantially reduced. Mm. But of course, you know, to completely eliminate it, then one must uh, cultivate insight into anatta and release the senses of, subtle senses of aversion that are the, uh, the absence of that uh, uh, sympathetic quality.
So when you start, you know, looking at somebody else and be feeling jealous that they are another state or another quality that you don't have, just to sort of feel the, the tension of that. That's what one should try to work with, the tension of that, the the the, the, the aversion that one is cultivating in the, the poisons one is putting into one's mind through that. And don't you know if you want to look at the other person at all, try to cultivate a feeling of congratulation. And that may be difficult if you feel jealous. But just begin to bear in mind, well, just because she gets more than I do, do I have to inject myself with this nasty stuff? <laughs> Could I not uh, you know, focus on the good stuff that I got? You know, like I got a functioning body, I got, you know, focus on what I have and, and rejoice and enjoy that more. Uh, because we all have, uh, well, we all have tremendous, given tremendous qualities, such as the ability to practice and all of access to Dhamma. And, you know, we all have a lifespan to live as a human being, which itself is something to feel uh, pleased with and grateful for. So to feel, to count one's own blessings and rejoice in those makes you helps to fill the heart a little more. Anapanasati Sutta suggests a series of trainings, but it isn't clear if they're in sequential order. Do we try to develop each step during every sitting or over the course of many sittings? Well, One can easily infer there's a sequence there. But obviously, of course, whenever you write anything down, you have to say something first. Um, You can't say it all at the same time. But basically, one would see that some things are quite um, common to... um, the Buddha's instructions on cultivating of sati, and it generally begins with mindfulness of body. So the first cluster of these instructions very much focuses on body. I suppose here the basic principle is in the body that we'll begin to get some sense of perspective on our minds, some sense of grounding and calming to give us perspective on our mind. If you start with the mind, it's difficult because it's so slippery and so quick uh, and very difficult to get perspective on at all without something to stand on. So we, we use the body as our vantage point. So I'd say fundamentally there is a sequence there and if you cultivate, you'll notice that you'll probably do well to to... It's not a matter of trying to get to the next thing. It's just if you do one, one instruction like thoroughly sensitive to the entire body, and that becomes fulfilled for you, then it will be apparent that when the body is in entirety, you'll be aware of the general, you know, activations in the body, the nervous system, the energy there, and that there'll be an interest in calming it, so cooling it. As that occurs, then there will be the sense that the mind will feel happy. So these flow along. But it's not as if you can say, right, I want to do this and then that and this and then that. It's just if you follow one and deepen it, then it will flow into the next. And you can't, I don't think you can really say, well, in this session, this Today I will go through the whole set. It depends what what your mind does, really. <laughs> you know, sometimes one can get that quality of of entire body fairly, you know, within half an hour or so, or fifteen, twenty minutes, or longer. Depends how well you've practiced, how how many, how long you've been doing it. Some people can do it pretty quickly. Sometimes it can take 
a while sometimes it's not there for days you know you get sick or you, your energies go strange and you just can't it doesn't happen so you have to work with these things over time and over years mm. the um overall structure of the sutra does suggest two processes a process of basically steadying and calming called uh, jitta cultivation of jitta um, which really covers the first three what are called tetrads or clusters of four four instructions and it's a particular language there that you see the same terms repeated sikati sikati training 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 Calming, rejoicing, gladdening, soothing, steadying. And then you get a second series at the end, which is called Anupasati, which literally means something witnessing. Witnessing in the presence of, witnessing in line with, seeing things in line with. And then you get um, Anicca, impermanence, uh, Viraga. So this last section refers to cultivation of insight or wisdom. So you've got three and then this other fourth section stands as a like opposed to it, like a thumb and three fingers. And you can cultivate that fourth tetrad on any of the other three. You can contemplate the impermanent factors arising in the body. So the body is not a single thing, it's just a a flow of changeable factors. This gives a sense of dispassion to the sense of being a, a unified body because there isn't one. <laughs> and and so, uh, and then Niroda, certain views about body begin to disappear. Patinisaga, you relinquish the idea, I am a body. So you can practice that with the those fourth, with the first tetrad or the second or the third. Um, so it works like that. But I would say, you know, the, the, the primary, most reliable approach would be to work through the body because this is more strongly apparent. Mind, difficult for the mind to get perspective on the mind. It's so involved, so identified with it. Body, you can get some perspective on it. You can, the mind can step back from it a lot easier. And it does provide this resource of grounding and calm and steadiness and returns the mind to a much more supportive rhythm than the mind might have when it's driven along by thoughts and impulses. It puts you back into a suitable rhythm for to observe phenomena, contemplate. Is there anyone equivalent to the saints who can ask for help with one's practice? <laughs> Creed occur. If you could only give one suggestion or piece of advice to someone to further them towards liberation, what would that suggestion or piece of advice be? Well, the answer to both these questions would be um, find a spiritual friend. And uh, if a teacher arises that you, you find yourself getting good results with, follow that teacher. Last one. Tonight it's about identity. Personality view in relation to the topic of self and not self. So personality view, Sakaya Ditti. How does this relate to anatta? And another question concerning a similar topic. What is the relationship of volition, sankara, in relation to not-self? Intention, motivation, how, what makes us turn towards the wholesome on a moment-by-moment level? Applying oneself to not where's the where does this impulse to incline towards the wholesome where does it come from? 
Um, how do we discern non-self in this? So you, I think you get this picture of, you know, something says do this, don't do that, even on a fine, refined level. Well, what is that? Is that, you know, is, if, there's, if there's no self, what, what does that? Um, what's, the uni- what's the driver of this practice? Mm-hmm. And so the answer to that, I would say, basically the driver is, should be wisdom. Um, And the wisdom, this is where the term citta becomes useful. You could say, my citta is inclined this way or that way. And, uh, you know, it's 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 something that people might, some people might shrink back from because it sounds like some jitters, some kind of soul or self, which is anathema in Buddhism. But there it is. <laughs> you know, as long as phenomena arise, there's 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 a response to it. As long as phenomena arise. There's an arising phenomena that arises in citta. As long as something recognizes it, there's something to recognize, the recognition factor arises in citta. Um, the sense of wisdom comes, arises in the citta. Uh, uh, and because citta base is, is normally based or is as identified with as a self, it becomes problematic. But if we really you know, recognize there is the factor of wisdom or the factor of aversion or the factor of inclination, do we, have to, we don't have to make a person out of it. Personality view is the first major stru- uh, conglomeration in which selfhood occurs, the coarsest one. We take the self to be commensurate with this physical form, bound to birth and death, um, sitting in, perhaps in sitting inside a body. Uh, this is me, this is mine, this is my territory here. Um, and, but that's only, that's, to, to get out of that is a profound shift. This is the stream entra. But it's not the end of the story. Yeah, because this same sense of identifying then begins to transfer to not to this visible form or this sense of a localized identity, something much more refined, such as uh, uh, um, levels of consciousness. Mm. So, for example, qualities of... Uh, as is uh, jhana, or whether the the personality is, or the medium personality has fallen away, and there's a quality of absorption or refinement or bliss or openness, and there's a sense of ah, oh, no, this is it. I'm in this. This is it. Or I have now I have now arrived at this stage. I have now a, a non-returner or something of that nature. So this I am tends to still transfer onto those more sublime qualities. So that's a distinction there. First level is much more fairly uh, um, reasoned. The seconds are much more to do with pleasure. Pleasure because refined states are pleasurable. And there's a sense of, you know, crystallizing and condensing around pleasant refined states and then even knowing itself becomes something that the sense of identity still creeps over it now again the process of of wisdom is to constantly review to know what's arisen is what's arisen and to notice as it passes is there a kind of clinging, holding on, if it hasn't arisen, is there a craving? So we keep working on clinging and craving at any level that that occurs. 
And that's essentially um, where self comes from. So that remains the ongoing focus for our practice, for our wisdom practice. Anyone?